Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, good news for imperfect people like you and me. This is season six, episode one. And for those of you who are new to this podcast, let me explain what it's all about. Basically, I try to combine two things that are very important to me. First, the gospel, the stories about Jesus of Nazareth, his life and teachings that are recorded for us in the books of the New Testament in the Christian Bible. And in this season, season six, we're going to be specifically on a journey through the Gospel of Luke. More on that in a second. But the life and person of Jesus, that's the basis for who I am and everything my life is about. And I love to share what I've learned over the years with others like you. And second, wabi-sabi, which is a Japanese expression. Uh, One way of defining wabi-sabi is to see it as a way of living that finds beauty in imperfection and accepts peacefully the impermanence of things. A way of finding beauty in imperfection. It's an awareness of intrinsic value that others may not see. And there's a lot of wabi-sabi in the gospel story. A simple manger, not a castle. A rugged cross, not a gilded throne. A crust of bread and homemade wine, not a five-star restaurant. That's wabi-sabi, which I think also perfectly describes how Jesus related to people. You know, we share in these stories of Jesus. We see those who, how he embraced the sick, disfigured by diseases, who, how, how he dined with the sinful, marred people who experienced moral failure. I believe the message of all the stories we encounter in the Gospels is that these created things are things that catch God's eye. God is drawn to the broken, and Jesus treated people with wabi-sabi. He saw their value. People who had rough edges, who were beat up by life, who were lost or seeking, who were anxious or afraid, they found a deep grace in Jesus. There was something transforming about just being with Jesus. His presence helped them see their value in God's eyes. And so Wabi Sabi celebrates the cracks and the crevices, the rot and all the other marks that time and weather and use and sin leave behind. So this podcast is pretty much a straightforward Bible study, but with that wabi-sabi twist, good news for the imperfect. Now, as I've said many times, the Bible is a library and not a novel. If you're a beginner, you don't need to start on page one and read it straight through. In fact, that's a bad way to approach the Bible because uh, I promise you, you'll never get through Numbers and Leviticus. In a library, you can pick other places to start. And remember, the Bible's not a textbook. It's got prose and poetry, prophecy and history, legal codes, religious ritual, biography, personal letters, lots of different types of literature, and many different contributing writers. And so you got to know what you're reading so you know how best to understand it. Now, I've invested a lot of time in the study of one portion of the New Testament called the Gospels. And the word gospel simply means good news. Specifically, it's the good news about Jesus. And there were four Gospels written that were authenticated by the early church, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are often grouped together and are called synoptic Gospels, which simply means they see together. In other words, the synoptic Gospels, well, they use a lot of the same material, and they look at Jesus's life basically through the same lens. Now, John's Gospel is autopic. It looks alone. It looks at Jesus uniquely and contains a lot of information that wasn't included in the other three Gospels. Now, none of the Gospels were intended to be, you know, the complete biography of Jesus. In fact, John concludes uh, his life of Jesus with these tantalizing words. 
if you have a Bible, you can look them up in John chapter 21, verse 25, where he says, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So Jesus tells, or John tells us that there's a lot more that Jesus did and said that never got written down. The gospel writers intentionally chose the stories they wanted to tell that best illustrated the life and teachings of Jesus. And so they ordered them, they shaped them, they edited them, I believe guided and inspired by God through the Holy Spirit. But they, got, they edited them into a style of spiritual literature that had never really existed before. No one had ever written biographies like this before the gospel writers. So that in itself kind of just intrigues me from a historical point of view. Now, in this season, we're focusing in on the Gospel of Luke. Well, who is Luke? Well, not Luke Skywalker, in case you're confused. Other parts of the Bible tell us that this Luke was not Jewish, but Greek, and is therefore the only non-Jewish writer in the Bible. We're told in Colossians 4.14 and 2 Timothy 4.11 that Luke was a physician and a trusted co-worker with the Apostle Paul. Basically, Luke's gospel is considered to have apostolic authority because of his close relationship and ties to the Apostle Paul. Luke's gospel is really volume one of a two-volume work, the other being the Acts of the Apostles, where Luke tells the history of the early church. And you'll see that both the, the first sentence of both books, the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, they're both very similar, and they're dedicating, he dedicates the books to a person named Theophilus, who most scholars believe was a wealthy patron who probably funded Luke's work. Some scholars think it's a made-up name because the word Theophilus just means lover of God, but there's no reason for Luke to make up a phony benefactor, so I go with the traditional view on that. Scholars also disagree as to exactly when Luke wrote the gospel. Some say as early as 60 AD, 62 AD, a period right before the fall and destruction of Jerusalem. But they, they, but they all agree that it probably took place before that, which was 70 AD. It's the longest book in the New Testament, and it uses much of the same material as Matthew and Mark. It's highly focused on the teaching ministry of Jesus. For example, of the 28 parables that are attributed to Jesus, 21 of them appear in Luke's gospel. And Luke's writing is much more fashioned for a Greek or Roman audience because he explains details that Jews would know without explanation, but would not, would not be apparent to a non-Jewish reader. So in that sense, it's a good gospel for us to read because I'm assuming most of the listeners here do not have a Jewish background. Luke is called the historian, because he gives the most chronological view of Jesus' life. And his presentation is most like our thought patterns today. So that's kind of some of the background as we begin season six with the Gospel of Luke. And as always, if you'd like to become a financial supporter of this podcast, you can follow the link in the Spotify program notes, or you can offer financial support through my website, which is simply jeffebert.com. I couldn't do this without your ongoing support, so thanks. All right, so now let's begin. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the very first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, 
I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. A few months ago, when I first started skimming through the Gospel of Luke, I was struck by something. All the characters in this real historical drama didn't start out solidly believing in what was happening. They had all sorts of um, doubts, and they sort of had to be pushed onto this journey of believing. It took a while for them to grasp what was going on. No one believed easily. They had to be convinced to really believe that God was doing something. Starting with Mary and Joseph, they had lots of confusion and doubt. Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were the parents of the infant John, Jesus' cousin, who as John the baptizer, eventually plays an important role in Jesus' life. But just go all, march all the way through the, through the book, and all the characters who appear around Jesus' birth, the shepherds, wise men, everyone, they all struggle with believing the good news that surrounded Jesus. And as we walk through this Gospel of Luke, the people who encounter Jesus all wrestle with believing at some point, whether they're fishermen, lepers, cripples, centurions, government officials, religious leaders, you name it. They all wrestle with understanding just what exactly Jesus was trying to say or accomplish, and also struggled with whether or not they would align themselves with Jesus. And I think that's actually a good thing, because people today don't start out automatically believing in Jesus either. Everyone is on a journey to believing. It doesn't just happen. People struggle. People have questions. They search for answers, and sometimes they hide behind shallow intellectualism or maybe religious-sounding platitudes to try and protect themselves from having to think too deeply about Jesus. So how does a person get to the point of believing the essential message of the Gospels that God became human just like us in Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, how does that journey happen? Well, if you've ever had lunch or coffee with me, you may know that I like to doodle on napkins while talking. It helps me to draw things out. It helps me to visualize whatever it is I'm talking about. So just imagine that I'm doodling out how this journey to believing happens, sort of like a decision tree. You know, all the various forks in the road that happen as you make that journey. So just imagine a line with an arrowhead that has to be split to one side or the other, a decision tree. And you can't stay neutral. You've got to go one way or the other. The first line represents the fact that everyone believes. Everyone believes something. Everyone has some kind of belief system already. You know, you could be a Druid, a Rastafarian, an atheist, a Greek Orthodox. Thousands of choices. Doesn't matter. Everybody believes something. Everyone on planet Earth has some kind of belief system. Our beliefs are the way we interpret the world around us. It's how we evaluate all the information that comes to our senses. It contains what we believe about human nature, good and evil, right and wrong, the past and the future. So everyone believes something. Even the most ardent atheist has a belief system. It's just not a belief in God. So what's the first line on the journey is everyone believes. But quickly you come to the first fork in the road. The first decision point has to do with what people believe about the universe. How did it get started? How does it work today? The big question is this. Is there something out there that got it all started or is there nothing? 
just cold, empty, dark space. Turn one way and you endorse the nothing, like physicist Stephen Hawking, who was very, very vocal about his belief that everything came from nothing for no reason. Let me say that again. Everything came from nothing for no reason. He believed in what he called spontaneous creation. It just happened. There's no reason behind it, no intentional cause. It just happened by random chance. We don't know why. We'll never know why. And all there is in the universe is cold, dark space and matter. <clears throat> no cosmic intelligence, no nothing. Any thoughts of any kind of eternal being or power or force or just, and I quote, a fairy story for people afraid of the dark. Everything came from nothing for no reason. And that means there's no purpose, no plan, no direction. You're pure accident. You, every, every person on this planet is actually just a pure accident of nature. You're just a highly developed animal. What you may think of as love is just highly developed chemical reactions somehow linked to our survival instinct. And we don't really know where that came from. You live, you die, your body's a bag of meat. When you die, your chemicals decompose, your energy is dispersed back into the cosmos, and that's it. No afterlife, no soul, no nothing. Nothing beyond the physical. So the first decision, is there nothing or is there something? And you may not be sure what the something is, but you believe something got it all started. You may not know any more than that, but most people globally at least believe that there is a something that got the ball rolling, something that intentionally put the universe into motion, something that pulled the trigger on the Big Bang. It's not just time and chance and matter. There is something else at work. In the choice between something or nothing, most people will say they believe there's at least a something out there. A lot of people stop there, like Albert Einstein. He kind of stopped there. He believed in a something, very different from Stephen Hawking, but he could never quite define it any more clearly than that. So you've got Stephen Hawking on one side and Einstein on the other, both brilliant men, both who saw the complexities of the universe, but they came up with different conclusions on where the evidence should lead, something or nothing. If we follow the path of the nothing, the path just ends. There's nowhere to go. It's a hard stop. There's no ultimate meaning. There's no future, nothing. If we follow the path of the something, then the next fork in the road is this question. Is this something personal or impersonal? Personal or impersonal? Personal means that something has consciousness. This something is self-aware. It has a will. It has a purpose. It has power. It may even love. We call that something God or maybe gods with a small g, but it is some kind of being that is real and in some way experienceable or knowable. The personal something is different from the universe it created. It's more than just the sum of the parts. It stands somehow outside of nature and is distinct from nature, as opposed to the impersonal. If the power that created the universe is impersonal, then it could be just an energy force that is not self-conscious. It doesn't have a will. It doesn't recognize you or me or anything individually. It's just a life force like from Star Wars, an energy pulse that we can all tap into. And so life is still sort of random, but all of life is linked to this larger thing. That's the impersonal. And that is the thinking behind religions like Hinduism and Buddhism. Though Hinduism and Buddhism may talk about thousands and thousands of little mini-gods, they aren't God in this created the universe sense. They are not self-generating. They, they are not self-created. 
behind them is this impersonal energy. And because there is something is impersonal, there's no grand design for you specifically. When you die, you're just a drop of water that re-enters the ocean. When you die, you merge with this larger consciousness, but you lose your own self-consciousness. Your energy is reabsorbed back into the universe, and that's it for you. No personal consciousness beyond this life. You often hear people say that all religions basically teach the same thing. Well, here's one big way where that fallacy breaks down. This something that got it all started cannot be both impersonal and personal. It's got to be one or the other. So this is a legitimate divide. And you will have to decide where you stand on the issue to believe something is personal or impersonal. It's one or the other. Now, most religions in human history take the fork of the road toward a personal god or gods who are self-conscious and who can know you as an individual. But the next fork in the road of believing is where it gets interesting. Is this God just our best guess, or does God reveal God's self to us? Is this God just our best guess, or does this God, this something, reveal itself to us? If it's just our best guess, that means we are on our own to figure it out. People over the centuries have looked up to the sky and tried to determine what this something is. They tried to discern the character of the something by examining nature, or the stars, or the moon, or the seasons, or whatever. If you look at the thousands of religions who follow the path of just our best guess to try and figure out what this something is, that best guess usually ends up personifying some aspect of nature. So there's the thunder god, the rain god, the storm god, fertility god, god of war, god of sex, god of harvest, and on and on and on. Or the god or gods are just a projection of human impulses and actions, just humans who are kind of a bit bigger or larger, like the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. They're just people, but with greater power. When it's our best guess, then it means we try to reach up to God. It's up to us to figure out what the divine is all about. And the divine is going to eventually kind of stay hidden as a mystery. We're the ones looking for clues to solve this ministry. This mystery. We're the ones who are trying to look behind the curtain but ultimately, we can't. We can't pull the curtain aside and get an honest look. So we're left to fill in the blanks ourselves, and inevitably our best guess is going to be full of misunderstandings because our best guess will always be limited by our own intelligence, our needs, our fears, our prejudices, and so forth. Or if we follow that other fork in the road and say God is not shaped by our best guesses, instead God is revealed, to follow that fork of a revealed something means that the something wills itself to be known by what it has created. Wills itself to be known by what it has created. This personal God wills to be known, wants to be known by what it has created. In other words, the something is a personal God who made everything but doesn't stop there. This something takes action to reveal what that something is like to its creation. That something is not passive but active in self-revealing a being who initiates its own self-disclosure. This is a huge fork in the road. If true, it means there is accurate information about this God being made available to humanity, and it's not just up to our best guess. This personal God takes steps to interact with us in this world to reveal its true nature and its desired will to humanity, the humanity it has created. A personal God who reveals itself personal God who wants relationship of some kind with its creation, a personal God who wants relationship of some kind 
with you and me. Revealed. Now, some of the largest religions in the world are based on this belief in some kind of revealing from God, usually associated with actual encounters with the divine and then also through sacred writings. Islam, Judaism, and Christianity all share this belief, as do many of the offshoots of these main groups, like the Mormons. In Islam, Muslims believe that the Quran was revealed from God to Muhammad through the angel Gabriel. It was dictated to Muhammad in Arabic over a period of about 10 years, I believe. And Muhammad then recited the Quran to his followers, who then eventually wrote it down. Islam acknowledges both the Jewish and Christian scriptures, but claims that the Quran supersedes them. And in the Quran, Jesus is prominently mentioned, but he is said to be one of the great prophets, but not the greatest prophet. That honor belongs to Muhammad alone. The Jewish faith also believes in a God who reveals himself, but that God stopped that revelation with the prophet Malachi, which is the last book, the end of what we call the Old Testament. And also like Islam, the Jewish faith also recognizes that a Messiah is prophesied throughout the scriptures, but they're still waiting. The Messiah, God's special messenger, they're still waiting for that Messiah to appear, and Jesus doesn't figure into their sense of God's self-revelation. So for them, Jesus is at best a good moral teacher, at worst a misguided lunatic. However, since the Holocaust of World War II, many Jewish people have abandoned the religious teachings of their heritage and no longer believe in a loving God. Many consider themselves basically to be atheists and see Judaism as their ethnic and historical identity, but not so much a religious conviction. A lot of people ask about the Mormons. So let me quickly deal with that. The Mormons are not Christian. They have a separate understanding. The story goes that the Book of Mormon was originally written in an unknown character, unknown language with characters similar to Egyptian hieroglyphics, which were engraved on gold plates that were given by an angel named Moroni to a man named Joseph Smith in 1827 in upstate New York. Now, no one besides Smith ever saw these golden plates. No one besides him could interpret what they meant. Like Muhammad, Joseph Smith was the only one to whom the revelation came. The golden plates somehow disappeared, but he wrote down their contents for his followers. And in their teaching, Jesus isn't the unique son of God, uh, you know, an equal member of the Trinity, but one of many sons of God. And though they use a lot of Christian-sounding words, the Mormons have a completely different belief system about Jesus. He's a man who is the prime example of what you could become by following the Mormon faith, if you're a man. Women, sorry, you're saved only through your fathers or your husbands. You sort of, but both sort of earn your stripes by being a good person. And then for men, you too then can become a son of God. And then there's the story of Jesus recorded for us in the Bible in both the Old and New Testaments, written by real people over 2,000 years, people who claim to be under the influence of God's Spirit. And as I said, the Bible's not a novel or a textbook about God. Rather, it's a library of how God revealed himself and how God interacted with people in the real world. Not one single book dropped from the sky. <clears throat> the Bible was not dictated by a divine voice, except for the Ten Commandments. It was written by real people who claimed to be used by God to record God's actions, like Dr. Luke, who wrote the gospel that bears his name. Listen to what he says as he opens his gospel. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the first 
eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. So here, Luke actually gives us a summary of what we can expect from the rest of the whole gospel, an orderly account, carefully investigated with historical accuracy, with a unique claim about Jesus, based not so much on the birth of Jesus, but on what he said about himself and what happened around his death. He claimed to be God's ultimate self-revelation to humanity. He claimed to be the Jewish Messiah. He came to say that this mystic God of the heavens is ultimately so personal that he loves you and me with every and every person on this planet so much that he squeezed himself down into a fertilized fetus and was born as one of us. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son, meaning Jesus, S-O-N, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and un- invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus claims to be, or at least the New Testament claims for him to be, the ultimate self-revelation of this divine something. This personal God who has a will and a plan and a purpose for your life, Jesus' birth, life, and death, and also his resurrection are key events because without them, Jesus is just another prophet, a moral teacher. And actually, if his claims to be the divine son of God are not true, then he can't really be called a good moral teacher because he lied about the most important thing. His own claims about himself are the basis for all his teachings. So if what he taught was a lie, you just can't call him a good moral teacher. He's just another crazy prophet or nut job. So if you follow the fork in the road toward a revealed faith versus that we have to figure it out for ourselves, then what you do with Jesus is the final fork in the road of believing. Accept or reject. Accept or reject. What if he is who he claims to be? Who what the writers of the New Testament claim for him to be? Emmanuel, which in Hebrew means God with us. Then there's another important fork in the road. And that that fork is to accept or reject. Embrace or ignore. Lots of people get stuck here because they want a third option, which is not to decide. Keep it in neutral until the very last moment. But in this case, not to decide is to decide. Not to decide is a no. Jesus tells us that, and we'll see that in many future episodes. Ultimately, as we'll see, there is no middle ground with Jesus. He doesn't accept a neutral position. So Luke's desire is to give us a reliable historical roadmap of the life of Jesus so that each person can make their best decision when they reach that final fork in the road. And I'm excited to begin that journey with you. Now, in the next episode... I'm going to skip ahead to chapter 3 and save all the birth narrative stories until the end because we should be hitting that point right around Christmas of 2024. 
it will take us that long to go through Luke paragraph by paragraph. It's a long book, remember. So there's just so much good stuff in Luke, we don't want to leave anything out. So welcome to this journey, this journey to believing. Where are you now on the road? How's your journey going? That's a good thing to contemplate until the time we get together again. So God bless until the next episode of Gospel Wabi Sabi. Take care. <music>